Welcome everyone back to the AMR Origin series, the series where we spend some time uncovering how AMR authors came up with the ideas, the paths that their papers took as they developed those ideas, both in the initial drafts and then through the review process. My name's Greg Fisher and I'm your host. And today we're discussing a fascinating paper, the commercialization of the practice of voyeurism, how organizations leverage authenticity and transgression to create value. And in order to do this, we're joined by the four authors of this paper um, in episode 25 of the AMR Origin series. So I'm just going to ask them to each introduce themselves, Trish, Sean, Maxim, and Madeline. So Trish, if we can start with you. Sure. Uh, I'm Trish Rubottom, and I'm an associate professor at McMaster University in Hamilton in Canada. Um, and I broadly study processes of social change, um, but specifically focused on marginalized groups and stigmatized contexts. Awesome. Thank you. Sean? Hi, I'm Sean Buchanan. I'm associate professor uh, of business administration at the Asper School of Business, which is at the University of Manitoba in Canada. And uh, geez, well, my research, it really doesn't belong in a business school. Let's just just get that out of the way. I, I study social and environmental issues in and around capitalism and management. Awesome. Thank you. Maxim. Uh, my name is Maxim Boronov. I'm professor of uh, sustainability and organization studies at the Schulich School of Business at York University in Canada. Although currently I'm on sabbatical as a visiting scholar at uh, INSEAD in, uh, in France. and um, uh, my research uh, revolves around um, social change um, and draws on institutional theory and, and um, gets into um, culture, uh, cultural processes, and emotions. Madeline. Hi, I'm Madeline Tubiana. I am an associate professor of entrepreneurship and organization at the Telfer School of Management at the University of Ottawa, also in Canada. So we have a big Canadian team here. Um, and my research, similar, you're going to see a similar theme, I guess, across all of us. I study what stalls and fosters social change, and I have a specific influence or interest in the role of institutional processes, stigma, and emotions um, in influencing those processes. Cool. So there are clearly some connections in your uh, sort of research identities there. But then we land up with this paper, which is commercializing the practice of voyeurism. So can one of you first just tell me the idea of voyeurism, what it is? Uh, so I can start with that one. Um, so voyeurism is one of those things, you know it when you see it. Um, but it actually took quite a lot for us to say, OK, what's our actual definition that then follows and theoretically aligns and all of that? So voyeurism is... A look at something that is supposed to be private. Um, so it's a look at the forbidden, basically. Um, and the idea actually came from an email. And voyeurism was the core of the idea right from the very start. So I got an email and it was about a blog post on slum tourism. And the heading of it had voyeurism right in the title. And I was working on a project in the sex industry with Madeline. And we, I had just done an interview with an erotic webcam model, and it was a great interview, and I was still thinking about it. And that's also a very voyeuristic context. Um, and so that word voyeurism just jumped out at me. And 
I, I just, that was what I wanted to study. I wanted to figure it out. I wanted to make sense of it because of those two very, very, very different contexts that both spoke to voyeurism. And then how did you, how did you, you come to the conclusion that this could be an AMR paper or a conceptual paper? Uh, okay, so that's a bit trickier. Um, so I, I sat on the paper for a long time. Madeline and I were in the middle of another project and we needed to finish things up. So we just kind of pushed it to so the side as something too complicated to deal with. Um, it wasn't coming directly from our empirical context, but it definitely related, especially the webcam side of it. Um, but we couldn't really deal with it within that project. So we just put it to the side and didn't think about it. And then um, and then I was sketching out ideas on the way home from a conference. I think it was the Boston AOM conference a while back. And um, I ran into Maxim in the airport. And so I was sketching down all sorts of ideas. I had no idea what I was doing or what kind of paper it would be. And Maxim and I spent the entire flight home um, talking about what the paper could be. And he just had such a strong theoretical anchor to it. He was talking about authenticity and it really changed what I thought the paper could be. Um, and that was where I first thought, okay, we have something here. It's really different, but I could see it. It needed to be a theory paper from everything that our conversation was. Um, and I knew I couldn't do that myself. Um, so then I talked to all of the people here and everyone jumped on board. But I think right from those early ideas when we brought in authenticity and we had the transgression from the beginning, um, we kind of knew it was going to be a theory paper and that we were going to aim for AMR. Maxim, how did you um, sort of begin to connect theoretical ideas with the sort of phenomenon that's out there? And what was your sort of, if you can, if you can try and go back there, thought process <laughs> of trying to, a layer on or incorporate a theoretical angle into into this this fascinating phenomenon well it it just struck me as uh, as this was that this was not this was not something we had a theory for it just it just uh, so from from a conversation with trish i, I it, it it was sort of it was very easy to see that there was some unique phenomenon and uh, that just there wasn't really a theory that could that we could plug into it. I mean, that, that without really distorting the nature of this phenomenon. So, so in, I think that that's pretty much as close as I can <laughs> reproduce the the recollection of that. But really, just um, I, I, I think it's it's sort of I think maybe kind of like being a qualitative researcher that you're kind of trying to do. Um, uh, you know, justice to the phenomenon and without distorting it too much. And it's sort of, and I sort of had that sort of kind of feeling that, well, this is a very distinct phenomenon that we can find in different contexts, but uh, the theories that we have just don't do justice to it. And I think, Maxim, I think you come at everything from a conceptual angle. You're so theoretically driven, that that's your natural position. So I think that accidental conversation we had in the airport is really, that was the turning point for it because that's Maxim's orient orientation to everything. And by the way, can I insert here that 
Trish goes to every single conference and comes home with like six new ideas for a paper. She's actually out of her mind. She shows up at AOM and she goes, okay, I want to do this. And I was thinking on the plane about this. And then, and then she, you're, you're me, she's meeting with people and she's sketching out ideas for papers. She gets hugely inspired when she goes to conferences. I do. I do. It's very true. This conference do the same thing that you did with this paper for three other papers. Yes. connect to different ideas that we're that we're having and i think that you know what was cool about this paper is that we had a model of an amr that could be like this right because that was on your mind trish and um that because it was phenomenon based at first i was trying to imagine because i'm empirical focus so i kept going back and wanted to think about it i had to go watch more um videos but we had that anchor of a paper and then with the uh, theoretical ideas and orientation of Maxim as an AMR expert, I guess, you know, it helped us think that it was possible to do a piece like this. Cause I don't think it's the way you would traditionally come to it. So can and you help me okay. double down a little bit on the, the, the sort of the phenomenon, cause we've had two examples mentioned so far. So um, you know, webcams, erotic webcams, if you will. And uh, the first, the, the email was about sort of slum tourism as being these two examples of the private world being made public for someone else's consumption as it's sort of the phenomenon of this idea of voyeurism. What are some other um, uh, examples of the ph phenomenon in play, particularly where it gets sort of utilized for a business or commercial standpoint, which is in the title of your paper. And how did you uncover all these different examples of voyeurism so that you could make the paper not just about one or two instances of it, but as a broader phenomenon that actually shows up in all sorts of different places? So what are some of those examples and how did you uncover them and develop them as the paper evolved? Um, so I think that was really important for the development of our paper was coming up with those examples as much as it was a theory driven paper. Um, those examples needed to give us sort of a grounding to say, what is voyeurism and get out of it to slum tourism or what's specific to erotic webcam to say, okay, if we have a whole lot of different examples, what's similar to all of them? And then that was how we identified what the phenomenon of voyeurism was. Um, so we all were very familiar with um, Wes and Karen's paper on mixed martial arts. Um, so that was an obvious other example that we drew in um, that seemed to fit, but also be very different. Um, and then reality TV came in a little later in our thinking where it was something that was much less transgressive than the other ones. And so that really helped push and Maxim really pushed in that direction, too, that this isn't as transgressive and niche. I thinking it was when we had erotic webcam and slum tourism and even mixed martial arts um, and then thinking reality television. You can push to all sorts of things where it's there, but maybe in lesser degrees. So um, the news um, is another example, um, even 
things that are trying to be voyeuristic, like that the movement in horror films, um, where they were trying to look real and with the Blair Witch Project that came out forever ago now. But people, there was this rumor that maybe it was real um, and that that was what got people's attention for what was just another horror movie. Um, so really stretching it to things that were much less transgressive, much more mainstream, and offered sort of a different take on the same underlying phenomenon that was voyeurism. So, Sean, can you unpack yeah. for us a little bit about the, the process of sort of cycling between this the, the phenomenon and what's sort of happening in the world and evolving it into something that's more general, more conceptual? And what, what, what did that process actually look like um, as this paper evolved, try and give a sense for someone who's who's thinking they've discovered an interesting phenomenon, but want to make it more theoretical. Aren't quite sure how to do that. What did what did you see behind the scenes in terms of that happening? Well, you know, this is in many ways was a really interesting learning process for us because it is a phenomenon driven paper, and this is a whole different discussion about theory papers that are built from phenomenon, which is very different than sort of your traditional conceptual paper. And so, you know, we had a few examples. We have Andy Crane's modern slavery example and Blake Ashforth and colleagues have a paper on, um, what was it again? Oh, uh, anthropomorphi anthropomorphizing organizations. And so what's interesting is because we all do qualitative research, this paper kind of Ended ending up functioning a little bit like a qualitative paper where we're using these different examples as almost our data to build theory from. And so at, at some point, you know, Trish and I were on uh, erotic webcam uh, websites looking at their terms, their, their rules, like their, their, uh, you know, their, uh, their codes of conduct and stuff like that. And I'm like, are we, is this a conceptual paper or are we, are we looking at data? You know what I mean? And so having these different phenomenon from mixed martial arts to erotic webcam, to slum tourism, to reality television, to all those things, every time we were sort of theorizing or building our theory, we would run it through each of those different examples and say, does it hold here? Does, okay, does it hold here? And if it didn't hold, um, we would we would elaborate or we would refine the theory or we would look at a deeper level or we would do something like that very much the way you do in qualitative coding of data, you know? And so that's what made it a fascinating thing. But instead of doing it from raw data, you were doing it uh, from these different uh, examples out in the world. And it, so, so it made it a process that I was more familiar with, but a different process because you, you're not showing that data in the same way you would in a qualitative piece. And so it, it functioned, you know, and, and that's why it was a huge learning experience for me to try and build theory from a phenomenon rather than write a, a, a traditional sort of conceptual theory paper. And so I guess that's some thoughts I have on it. And I think, you know, we also like, that was a really fun process. It got me hooked on reality TV, which is something I never wanted to admit, but, um, <laughs> We also, from the beginning, from that conversation, so like Trish and I had transgression in our head and then Maxim brought in authenticity. So we had these two anchors of theoretical concepts from the beginning. And we were keeping those kind of in mind all the time as we were still connected to the phenomena. So we did have these two kind of theoretical anchors. And then of course our interests 
our kind of joint interest in emotion. So we were still connected at the theoretical level all the time. You know what I mean? And I think that we kept going back to those and those core elements didn't change even though we, the paper evolved because we were fundamentally interested in this weird tension between transgression and authenticity. This idea that authenticity is always supposed to be good. Transgression is always bad, but it can be the reverse. And how do you manage that? And, you know, so that theoretical puzzle still remained, even though we were so linked to the phenomenon. I think all of us were really interested in that little bit of that theoretical puzzle. And I think that was a important nugget that kind of kept us focused. And I think that's an important piece here. If I read the paper with a sort of an associate editor hat on, is that although it's new theory for the most part, it's not completely coming out of nowhere. There is this piece on authenticity that is sort of borrowed and grounded in the existing literature on authenticity, this piece on, on transgression, which Trish and, and Madalena, I suspect you're like, that's sort of part of, of what your core research identity is associated with. And then there's this piece on emotions, which, you know, we've got a giant literature on emotions and emotional reactions to things. But it's the connecting of those things in interesting ways to be able to explain this phenomenon that makes it uh, 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 makes it uh, valuable. Um, can you talk a, a, a little bit about sort of the, the the evolution of how those things connected and and how what were some of the the, the sort of theoretical levers that you pulled to make them coalesce in the way that you've made them coalesce because People read this thing and it fits transgression, authenticity, and emotions fit together very, very nicely. And you've got beautiful tables that sort of elaborate how they fit together. But but I, I should imagine there was some evolution to get to that point of, of fitting together so nicely. So I, I don't know, Maxim, can you give us a little bit of a sense of sort of how do you coalesce those things together and and what did that process look like? What were there any 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 things that helped in talking about them or in sketching things out or in in going back and forth. I'm just interested to know how do you arrive at something that's that's sort of precise and good, um, but 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 in the process I would expect is somewhat messy. <laughs> and and messy it was at times. <laughs> uh, because I think we're all we're all fairly enthusiastic about uh, I think different aspects of the, of the paper and different theories right and uh, and um, and um, you know um, Madeline and I have worked on a, on a number of things and we do tend to get competitive in a in a constructive sort of way <laughs> and um, you know Sean is really good turns out in mediating and uh, you know and uh, you know you know pulling us apart and all that and uh, which is I think a key reason of how <laughs> things eventually uh, get integrated and cohere nicely um but um but but it's but i think it's an interesting thing though that that uh, that uh, um and i think it's particularly between madeline and i like where we sort of we look at it and and of course and uh, you know one of us will say oh, of course it's transgression the other one will say well of course it's authenticity right and uh, so then it becomes a question okay well how do we <laughs> you know how do we uh bring these things together right and and i think um and 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 um and Trish is really good at filtering out the nonsense and retaining the uh, the stuff that's actually, you know, 
meaningful and useful, right? And so, you know, so like, uh, and um, so I, I guess what I'm saying is that it's, it seems to be more of a, like in this particular case, it's more of an interpersonal process of uh, um, combining theories in a way that makes sense more so than kind of purely intellectual or, you know, kind of a rational process of, of course, well, you know, these theories, you know, according to so-and-so, because I can, I can, I can very easily visualize a scenario with a different set of people uh, where these things might never come together, actually. Yeah. And what did it look, what, what, what was your mode of operating? Because you're obviously um, all, for the most part, located in Canada, but not in the same place. So would you jump on um, Zoom calls and spend time debating things? Or was it sending emails back and forth? So as a team of four writing a conceptual paper that has sort of many different aspects to it, and you're all bringing something different to the table, give us a little bit of a sense of your workflow and your work style and communication style to make that work. Uh, that was a bit of all of the above, everything you're talking about. It was a lot of emails, a lot of phone calls, definitely some Zoom. It was trying to find times that we could all be there together, um, which I think was the hardest part with all our different schedules and different time zones, even at that, even though we're in Canada, we had three different time zones uh, to work with. And that was the hardest part, because if we weren't all in the conversation, it was easy to go down a direction. And then the person who wasn't able to make that call uh, was like, wait, wait, but what about this? And then we had to roll back. Um, so I think it was a very messy back and forth, um, true iteration style, um, but using everything we had available um, worked and pulled it all together. And and I think I think using the flexibility of all the different tools was really critical. I also think that we you have to give credit to Trish here because she's the lead and she had to navigate a lot. So she had to have she had more conversations than anyone else, because yes. sometimes if we couldn't get all together, she'd have a call with me. Then she'd have a call with Maxim because, of course, maybe we were <laughs> navigating a, a contentious point. And then she'd have a call with Sean. And so like. Trish was a really amazing lead author on this. And I think for a team of four, you need a really strong lead. So I think that we used all those modes, um, but Trish was our fearless leader and Sean may be the mediator. Um, but it, I, you know, I was just reading the paper before this interview and I was like, I'm really proud of where we got, you know, and, and that's part of this process of like working through the kinks of different ideas and what people bring to the table to get there. And we have to have a lot of conversations, but. Um, Thanks, Madeline. You were amazing. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I do think I do think it's important to double click on that. That you know you need someone who's going to take that lead and push the paper forward. Can you just give us? You said Boston AOM. I'm not in in my mind. I, I don't even know what year that is. I know the paper was eventually accepted at AMR in 2020, I believe. Um, and so what did the what did the the, the timeline look like? So w when was that Boston conference when you first had the idea? How long did it take to get to first submission and how long did it then take to get through the review process? I just want to give first time authors a sense of 
what the the the, the time evolution of a of a conceptual paper like this looks like. Maxim, do you remember when Boston I, was? Actually, it wasn't a Boston. It, okay. Let's not let's not scare okay. people watching this. It wasn't that long. It was it was Atlanta actually. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, what year yeah. was Atlanta? Um. Okay, that's a, <laughs> that, that's more complicated. <laughs> Did I mention I'm not good with numbers? <laughs> Let's just put it this way. The people who are interested can just go on the Academy's website and find out what Atlanta was. That's yes. what the germ of the idea was. And I will say what's funny about this is that the review process was extremely supportive. The reviewers and editor were so helpful and so constructive and never uh, and, and always fed the development of the paper. But you would never know that based on some of our author uh calls we were the amount of uh of um spirited calls we had it was it was like we were going through the most difficult review process of all time but it really wasn't 2017 okay there you go 2017. so 2017 was the academy conference you get the idea it looks like it was submitted in probably about May of 2019, so about two years worth of work to get it to submission. But then it seems like a fairly sort of uh, as almost as fast as it can be through the review process. So you obviously took it seriously, responded to reviews quite quickly and, and, and got things going. Was there anything... Um, about the review process that you found that was valuable to the paper or that was valuable to you as a team in terms of responding to reviewers that seemed to work well, because it appears that you navigated it pretty effectively. And this is something that many authors struggle with is how do you handle the review process for a conceptual paper where you might be getting pulled in different directions or where um, the, the the reviewers have got sort of um, no end to what they might say about the paper and what they might suggest. So, uh, what 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 was what was your process and what did you learn from that? Um, so I think all of our reviewers and the editor were very clear and actually very aligned. That I think was one of the reasons it was such a smooth review process for us is because they were aligned in what they needed. Um, so in that sense, we didn't have to deal with that challenge. And I think that is the hardest challenge when you have reviewers going in different directions and an editor saying, figure out your path forward. Um, so that can be really tricky, but we didn't have to do that. We had, um, it, we didn't, the core of the paper never really changed. Um, and what we were pushed on was, you know, what's the theoretical hook? Be really, really strong and clear on the theoretical hook because, you know, the empirical grounding was always very clear, but um, because it's a theory paper, we needed to um, really push on that. And another thing that they pushed on that we struggled with um, was our ontological position. So they kept coming back to say, okay, who decides whether something is voyeuristic or not? And it was that simple question that we had to answer, I think, in every stage of the review process, because we didn't quite get it. In the very beginning, when we first submitted, we actually had a two by two um, of where the different examples fit in how authentic they were and how transgressive they were. And we actually decided where they went in that two by two. And the team, the editorial team was very clear saying, 
why do you get to decide that this is voyeuristic or not? What if I disagree? And they kept pushing. We were like, okay, we don't get to decide. It's societal's moral codes that decide whether something is voyeuristic or not. And they said, well, does that mean everyone agrees that something is voyeuristic? You know, what if some people don't think that The Bachelor, the reality television show, is voyeuristic? They think it's perfectly acceptable. Um, and so we had to constantly wrestle with that throughout the whole thing. And they just kept pushing and pushing. And we, we knew we hadn't quite gotten there. Um, and we just kept trying to keep going. So it was one of those review processes where they asked for similar things. We made some progress, but they pushed us to go further. Um, and we just needed to trust them and to trust ourselves that, that pushing further, we would find, um, the right way to explain what we were talking about. And in doing the review, did you tend to try and respond to comments first and then integrate them into the paper or rewrite the paper first and then write comments? Did you have an ordering effect there that seemed to work better or worse for you? Um, I, I think both. Um, and you guys can help me remember what we did. I think we kind of went through piece by piece all of the reviewer comments and sort of jotted down our ideas. And then we went back to the paper to rewrite the paper and then came back again to uh, to the reviewer comments to kind of see if we really got it and how that fit with what we did in the paper. I want to touch on, on two things as as we sort of move, move towards the latter part of this interview. And the first is the idea of emotional optimization and arriving at these mechanisms for emotional optimization, which I thought just in and of itself, this notion of emotional optimization, and you might have been sort of pushing in that direction from this, taking this ontological stance as to who decides, but but I'd be interested in to know how how and when you arrived at that, and then thinking through these mechanisms for emotional optimization, which is in a sense, you know, how do you make in some senses how do you make something that might be more um, morally questionable seem less so, and how do you make something that might seem uh, uh, less authentic, seem more authentic. So it's 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 tied into the dimensions that you've got. But but really, how did you arrive at number one, the, the emotional optimization, and then at the mechanisms that facilitate that? So that was Sean. Sean saw that so clearly right from the beginning. Um, so I'll let Sean answer that question. Well, I remember that one of the things that was causing the difficulties with the paper is you have transgression that can operate as a negative and a positive for value creation purposes. And you have authenticity, which can operate as a negative and a positive, which really trips you up because you're trying to explain this phenomena and you have these two aspects of it that both can work in different ways. And it's very hard to theorize around something like that. And when we started to discuss emotions, that was the big eureka because it it said, oh, it's about managing the emotions and how the transgression and authenticity is perceived by the audiences. And then it's funny, earlier on the interview, Greg, you said, mentioned the word levers. And that's what I remember specifically thinking about emotional managing those levers of authenticity and transgression. And so, you know, you're, you're, you're 
the businesses doing this are sort of pulling the strings. And in our, I think the model, I'm not sure, it still kind of exists, but it sort of looks a little bit like a pulley system where yeah. emotional optimization is about finding that optimal balance between authenticity and transgression um, in a way to uh, create value for audiences. And so as soon as we sort of hit on that mechanism of the, uh, the emotions being managed to find that sweet spot, then it was then it became that fun game of thinking, oh, well, how do all of these different voyeuristic, uh, these businesses utilizing the practice of voyeurism, how do they do this? And so that's when, you know, we started looking at MMA rules and watching reality television and looking at code of conduct for erotic webcam websites to see how they sort of manage the emotions of audience by sort of uh, pulling the levers of authenticity and transgression. So that became, and, and what ended up doing, what was really cool about that is that then it made us kind of switch the way we saw the role of authenticity and transgression. And in switching that, that provided like really the big aha moment for the theory of this. It's like, you know, it's not about, it's, it's about the management of the emotions that is key in this. And that was, uh, became a kind of a big turning point in the paper and its contribution, I think. Well, I do. I think that's absolutely critical to recognize that you need to go beyond, if you will, the two by two matrix of two dimensions and authenticity and, and sort of evolve that into something that's more substantive, more theoretical, more insightful. And this idea of emotional optimization and the fact that those dimensions can work in either direction I think is a, a a very useful insight, and and in some sense, this paper could serve as an exemplar to future papers that sort of grapple with a similar kind of tension, where you've got multiple dimensions that each have both positive and negative aspects depending on which direction you go, but it's related to how the audience perceives that. And I think about papers on social evaluations and on reputation and legitimacy and, and all of those things where it's really dependent on, on, on the audience stance as to how things are interpreted. And I think this paper lays a sort of template for how those might be thought of in a, a, a more nuanced way than just, you know, positive and negative in each case. So, so congrats on that. And then the okay. final piece, the final piece I want to touch on, because I thought it was really well done, was the how you set this paper up to be a platform for future research and future ideas. And so I'd love to know just about your process for writing the discussion section, but in particular, sort of how you seed um, the, the potential for future research and future ideas. And then... Um, I'd just love to know what you individ each individually see as the most exciting sort of next next step for this sort of line of research or for taking this as a, as a conceptual model and and moving it forward. Um, so to, to start off just by telling me a little bit about the process of writing the sort of ideas for future research or the, the platform for future research. I can't remember exactly what you called it in the paper, but I thought it was very well done. Thank you. Um, so a lot of the stuff that wound up there were things that we were playing with in the paper uh, that we couldn't deal with. So that was a huge part of, okay, 
we want to get into this whole subsection that goes off on a tangent um, that deals with the variation between the four different examples we're talking about or goes off into the temporal over time, how like really getting more into all the things that we were already talking about, but at a much more detailed level and needing to scale it back and say, okay, that is not the core of what we're doing here. We can't fit it all into one paper. And that became sort of the bucket of, okay, I guess it's future research then. Someone else is going to have to take that idea and run with it um, because we can't make it fit into one paper. Awesome. And, and, and I think it, I mean, it landed up being a very rich section. So I can see that you grappled with quite a lot as you went through writing this paper. Um, so what are the exciting things that you think can come from this work? And maybe in particular, as they sort of relate to each of your own research portfolio, research identity, some of the stuff you do and or, or, or something you'd, you'd see as an exciting next step for this paper? What gets you excited in that section? And, and I'd love to just hear from each of you in that regard. Um, so I think, like you said, each of us has a different thing probably that excited us. I, I really, we spent a lot of time thinking about this element of desirable versus undesirable emotions and the notion that the desirable can be both positive and negative, but also the role of moral emotions and when they can, and this is part of what Max and I had lots of conversations about. And we could, I could have spent, we could, I want to blow that up. And there's so much potential to really understand what can be a, like a productive, I guess, you know, in various different contexts, emotional response that can feed value or that can be positive. And when emotions set you out of an experience or send you into moral evaluation or threat response, what is that? What are those thresholds? And really unpacking that and making sense of that is exciting to me, like, and something I've thought a lot about. And Trish and I it got us thinking about shame and other moral emotions. And we're now writing a paper on shame. And it's not directly related, but it comes to the fact that we were like really thinking about these ideas and the fact that, and then the last part is, and like that connects to that for me. And then I'll, is that the idea that it's not transgression or authenticity themselves that are good or bad, right? And just really thinking about how does that relate to other concepts or ideas that we have out there that we think the con it's the concept. And because I work with stigma, I really like this idea of getting away from stigma being bad or good and the experience of it. It's experience and the emotional response. So I really am excited about those elements and um, spending more time thinking about them. I just want to reflect a little bit on on two things that you said. I think the emotional um, elements of this paper are nuanced and are interesting and emotion researchers, there's so much interesting um, fodder for new ideas and pushing in new directions. And then the second is, that was one thing I really took away, that I immediately associated authenticity as positive and transgression as negative and came in with that mindset. And through the process of reading this paper, had my mind sort of, I was I was doing mental flick flacks in the, in the sense that you you were you were illustrating to me that well authenticity can be negative and transgression can actually be something that's positive and value creating and so it was a very interesting process just in terms of reading it and and then as you pointed out thinking about well what else exists in that same guise where. Things that we think are positive can be negative, and things that we think are negative can be positive. So um, I, I had some of that same sense in reading the paper. What else excites you about 
at sort of uh, 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 paths forward or opportunities for future research from this paper? Uh, well, for me, um, besides the emotions piece, and uh, Madeline talked about the shame thing that we're still working on. Um, but for me, there's an element of social change over time and what happens to these over time as society changes. You think about, you know, reality television and the idea of people sort of putting a camera on their lives that's becoming more and more acceptable. Um, but then there's also the flip side of these businesses are actually creating the social change in some sense. They're driving the social change, but they're also having to respond to it. So that idea, that tension between what's the role that they're playing in the social change and then what are they having to respond to that they don't actually have control over. Um, that to me is sort of an interesting thing going forward. Yeah, with, without a shadow of a doubt. You know, reality TV 40 years ago didn't exist. Now, it's, it, it, and you, it, it just keeps pushing the boundaries as to what's appropriate and not appropriate and how far are we going to go. And so uh, I, I, I think... Is there's a lot to be said about how things change over time in terms of what's viewed as voyeuristic or not. Sean, what about you? I'm gonna, well, I'm going to actually build on that because this actually, it's something we didn't quite get to in the paper that I think that was one of the thing, the early things was the how these things can evolve over time. You know, when we, we talked earlier about our two by two and how we just position, you know, we go MMA is here and wrestling, professional wrestling is here and slum tourism is here. And, and you know, we, we put it on the spots, but then we started to think, but you know what, when MMA first started, it was way over here in this quadrant and now it's moved over here. And the processes of that movement, um, and we see all, you know, we, we, we see, um, destigmatization. We see research on that. But what I would really like to see is some of the things that we developed in the paper about managing audiences' emotions and that emotional optimization, how that unfolds over time, you know, because that's a, a way into looking at the evolution of these things that I don't think I've seen in the existing literature. So that in particular, I'm fascinated by. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it, it just double clicks on what, what I've just said is, is, is really fascinating. And, and, and you elaborate on, on very interesting sort of ways of viewing that. What about you, Maxim? Well, uh, so three things, really. Uh, so one, which kind of connects with, to the kind of work that I have done before and continue to do, which is sort of the centrality of human experience, um, you know, sort of the, you know, that it's not the thing itself but how we experience, how we interpret it. And uh, um, sort of, and, that, and that's where, you know, such ideas as emotions and so on come in. And, uh, and so, the, so, so it was very interesting to, um, to play with this in, in this context, which is really not um, something that I had given as much thought about um, until I started working on this paper. Um, and the, but the two other things that are kind of um, new for me was to really actually appreciate um, the the prevalence of of voyeurism in um, today's society, right? Where like where you know where before um, you, you know sounds very uh, sounds very ancient, but anyway, I'll continue. <laughs> but uh, but you know, before in the older days, um, it was uh, you know just just tell me about your professional qualifications, etc. But no, now pretty much in every context, right? Whether it's uh, you know. Uh, 
uh, you know, like the bartender from whom you know who, who's who's pouring you a drink or etc. You know, every, every every everybody's supposed to tell you something private about themselves. You know, the, the person behind the profession. You know, um, so and 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 there this this element of <clears throat> voyeurism. I don't think um, I would have appreciated uh, as much as I do now. If you know, um, uh, having worked on this paper. And then um, sort of, and the, the, the other thing, uh, the, the final thing that is, um, as, as a scholar, I've come to appreciate the value of, of uh, phenomenon-driven theorizing, right? Which, which, is, which is, you know, I, I, I mean, I've, this, you know, this was a new experience for all of us, right? In a sense that, yes, I have written theory papers before, but I've never done a uh, phenomenon-based theorizing. And, uh, and this was, a fun process, uh, I, I think, <laughs> for all of us. Um, and uh, but it's also, I think, it, it, there's. I've, I've just realized that there is so much power to this um, phenomenon-driven theorizing um, because there is so many different phenomena out there um, that that uh, really deserve um, grappling with and um, and um, and really developing novel theorizing. To understand properly um, that we cannot do as well in the context of sort of the more traditional, um, you know, how do we make a theoretical contribution kind of paper? And uh, so this this is something that's that's one of the things that I took away for myself as a scholar um, from this. And that's a perfect lead into what I would like to frame as my final question, which is if you've got a more junior scholar or someone who you know, a colleague who comes to you and says, Look, you've written this paper. It's a it's a great example of phenomenon-driven theorizing. You saw the phenomena, you wrapped a theory around it, you sort of borrowed from certain places, made it, uh, but 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 utilized those things in novel and interesting ways, and and made it. We're able to make a theoretical contribution for that uh, through doing that. What would be one or two? Um, uh, points of advice you would give to someone who wanted to try and do something similar. They had, they feel they've identified an interesting phenomenon that is under theorized and they wanted to try and do something similar to help them facilitate the process of trying to write and develop, write a, well, develop a theory and write a paper that's associated with that phenomenon in some way. Are there any things from this project that you think would be useful points forward or points of advice that you could offer someone who wanted to do something similar? Oh, that's a hard question. Um, I, I think one of the things that helped us was that we really, really different people on the team knew the literatures we were playing with really, really well. And I think if you didn't have that and were trying to do a phenomenon-based theory paper, you would veer too much into the empirical. It, it would be really hard, I think, to pull off making it, making that theoretical hook and contribution theoretically if you weren't really, really, really in those literatures. Um, so you, so have to, you have to know what's there already to be able to utilize it, add to it, and, and recognize what's not working from what's there already. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I also think that like one thing that's important is that just because it's a novel phenomenon doesn't mean that it can drive novel theorizing. 
You know what I mean? And I think that that sometimes the mistake someone can make is like, we've not talked about this phenomena, but if you look, it could be explained by this. And what was at the core, what helped us all along is that there's this odd puzzle about explaining what this is. And it contradicted the theories that we happen, like Trish said, that we happen to know in this author team. So I think you need to make sure that your <clears throat> what's <clears throat> the phenomena is as actually novel as you think it is at a theoretical level. Generating the phenomena generates a theoretical puzzle that you're then going to, in some sense, work towards resolving, and that's what your contribution is, as opposed to you know it can just be explained by something that already exists. One thing I'll add too is that um, for phenomenon-driven research like this, a conceptual paper having being able to go through all those examples and you know i i would say if anyone was planning on doing if they had a phenomenon that was really interest i i would say dig into every example of that phenomenon you can find and put it through the 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 ringer for what your for what your theorizing is because that ultimately really helped us uh refine our theorizing and make us feel like we are establishing credibility with what we were saying theoretically and that is something i i don't haven't done in other conceptual papers i've written to the same extent but you know we had tables of mma slum tourism erotic webcam does this apply and if it doesn't how do we refine our theory to do that and so that's a a, a tip that i wouldn't have thought about before getting this paper but i came away with it but then the trap you didn't fall into was because you've got the example, that's your theory. You still have to have the theoretical logic and argument that stands independent of, oh, because MMA does this, that's an example of whatever, some sort of emotional optimization. You, so uh, I think that's an interesting tension. The examples are no doubt valuable, 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 but they don't stand on their own as theory. They need the theory. Uh, uh, to layer on top of that and for the theory to stand on its own without the example um, to be able to make a contribution. So I think that's a, 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 a very useful sort of uh, um, aspect to point out and then to recognize the tension between too reliant on examples versus no examples at all. You're going to land up in some sort of weird space. Yeah, I think one of the things that we wound up doing and refined over the process um, was using the examples as a test. So it was almost to test our theory. We didn't always get it right through the whole process. We kind of leaned in different ways at different times. But by the end, I think we got that right, where it was testing, is this common in the different examples? What's not common in the examples and why? And what does that tell us for the theory? So we were really just testing our ideas in those examples. Chris, do you think they were robustness checks? Is that what you were saying? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would also add a, just just two quick things in in regard to this uh, um, uh, advice. And I think this this is so. This is something we really um, uh, owe credit to our associate editor, to John Amis. Uh, he said, um, which which I which I, I appreciate it more than ever now that you've asked this question about you know like what what you know how do we uh, avoid some of these traps with um, uh, uh, with uh, phenomenon-based theorizing, right? He said he kept on push, pushing us to really uh, say, okay, so what's you know what's new? Uh, I guess what is the new theoretical takeaway? 
and he kept on pushing us uh, on on multiple rounds uh, on on this particular issue because it is I I because I it is very easy to fall into the trap of simply sort of applying and I think this kind of connects also to the issue that that uh, Madeline raised right that yeah, you don't that that not not every um, new context is is generative for you know for theory right and and it's very easy to fall into the trap with a paper like this where you simply explain what happens with a phenomenon but you're really not coming back with new um, uh, theoretical insights and so so this this was very very um, uh, important that uh, that we were getting pushed on it and I think this is something that um, uh, I would suggest to you know to future authors to really um, uh, focus on to really keep on thinking okay so what is this that what does applying theory to this phenomenon uh, allow us to uh, to do for developing a particular theory further, right? But then also the the the, the flip side, which I think is also seems to be important, uh, which I've noticed as as a reviewer also um, on theory papers, is is which applies not just to phenomenon based theorizing like this, but also to other contexts. Is that I think sometimes people don't quite have a handle on their own examples that they're trying to apply, you know, and so their own examples are sort of abstract to them. They don't really get them. And uh, so they don't do what, uh, uh, what they're hoping is going that, that those examples will do. Right. So, so, uh, and, uh, and, um, and it's, and it seems in general that one of the, one of the worst things that can happen with a, uh, you know, with a theory paper and process, right. Is, is that it becomes sort of too abstract, right. Like, so like people say, okay, I can, I can see, um, what you're trying to do here, but I don't get it. that. I don't get it. I don't see how it would work either conceptually or in concrete context. And uh, and that tends to happen. I think a lot of times when people, when the authors don't themselves quite have a specific lived experience that they can kind of plug their theoretical constructs to. And uh, and in and um, and uh, in the phenomenon based theorizing, in some ways, I think maybe that's that's the flip side of the other problem, right, is that it's actually, it's more avoidable. That problem is more avoidable because you are dealing with a context that presumably uh, you know something about and you care about enough. Um, and you're perhaps less likely to fall into the trap of ending up with a bunch of, you know, constructs that you don't actually know how they would actually operate in the real world. Yeah. Very well said. And thank you to all of you for your uh, tips, perspectives, ideas around this, because I think you've you've lived this experience and um and and you've certainly had the advantage of you know being from your own empirical work being close to certain of the phenomena that you you, you reflect but but then have been able to really wrap around and uh, and and advance an interesting theoretical perspective around this idea of commercializing voyeurism yeah. so thank you thanks for the thanks for entrusting your work to amr thanks for um, participating in this uh, AMR uh, origin series interviews. And thank you, um, Trish, in particular, for uh, being so patient in terms of wrangling and making sure we can have everyone from the team on this call. It was worth waiting for. Um, I'm very grateful to um, each and every one of you for being willing to participate in this way. And um, I hope you will continue to contribute to AMR, to continue to write such interesting papers and, uh, and just be part of our community. So thanks very, very much.